All right, so we're in the book of Proverbs. We're at chapter 14. Just a reminder before we read, and I'll have you stand again for a second for that. But the book of Proverbs is divided into seven collections. The first collection we looked at was chapters 1 through 9, very long collection, and that collection is sort of focused on the child or the youth. It's simpler to interpret than the rest of the book, and it's breakings in terms of the literary divides are simpler to understand and it's sort of a preparatory work for the rest of the book that collection it has in it the purpose statement which is to hear wisdom and instruction and we talked about wisdom as hokmah is the common word and instruction masar the common word for that and we continue to see those throughout the book but to see the words of understanding, to grab the instruction of success, justice, judgment, and equity. And then we also looked at the thesis of the book. And so that purpose statement is, is to make it so that wisdom and instruction, or wisdom and training are given. And that allows for, then, the youth to be able to do these things. Now, older men too, but even the youth. The thesis is verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the idea of the fear of the Lord is a, is a theme, and we'll see that in the text that we go through today. Now that whole first nine chapters was a large chiasm. There's the structure there, and we see smaller chiasms throughout the book. The text we're looking at today doesn't have a chiasm, but it is a literary section. So we're in the middle of the 375 Proverbs of Solomon, Collection 2. And so that section of the book is the longest section of the book. So that focuses on the man, the young man, as an adult. And the book later on focuses on fathers and leaders. But we have, as the middle of our section today, a verse that focuses on kingship. And so there's sort of a a deviation from the norm of this section uh, as we look at it. So please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading... Proverbs chapter 14, verses 1 to 32. I won't be reading to the end of the chapter, just to verse 32. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of an ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it. But knowledge is easy to him who understands. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. But the folly of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter the heart may grow, even in laughter the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. 
A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil will bow before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and His children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. The wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his death. Please be seated. So I've given to you in print there the reminder of how the the sections are divided up. This will be the last sermon on this chapter. And so you have the first chiasm on page 2, the second chiasm on page 3, and then the other sections, there's three earlier, there's two earlier sections before this last section. And the, the earlier sections, you know, there's sort of the um, walk by faith, don't walk by sight, then there's contrasting wisdom with actions, and then contrasting the consequences with the actions themselves. And lastly, we get to contrasting doctrine and the consequences of life or death. So this is the conclusion of the chapter, and it's drawing in the importance of doctrine and how it leads to these consequences. So this is sort of a, a book ending. It's going, here, here's the, the doctrine, and then here's the consequence of life and death, and all the things in between that we've been looking at and the other sections are being reminded of. So this, this book ending reminds us of all those things. It's a way of emphasizing with the close of this literary section. So we, as we look at this internally, this little section, verses 25 to 32, there's a couple of groupings um, that are sort of couplets. Okay, so verses 26 and 27 are a couplet, so group those together. And then 29 and 30 are a couplet, and 31 and 32 are a couplet. Okay, so we see the themes and the terms and how they relate to each other. And so they're also going to remind us of things earlier in the chapter, and so there are allusions to what has been said previously, as well as turns of phrases that are similar to things we've already seen in Proverbs. So we're seeing a stacking of the literary complexity of the book. As the book goes longer, there's more and more self-reference 
which is you know only natural, right? You can't reference yourself well when you're a page in. And so, but the, the structure of the book is becoming increasingly complex. The subject matter is becoming more mature. And at the same time, the illusions and other literary structures are building on each other. So the complexity is increasing. So let's look now at verse 25, page 5 there. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. Now you remember verse 5 says, you know, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Verse 23 says, in all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. So we've, we've been talking about witnesses and we've been talking about the effects of speech already. And the idea that, that false witnesses speak out of their character, we, we looked at how Jesus talks about prophets and how you can have trees and the kind of fruit the tree bears is in accordance with the kind of tree. You don't collect figs from thorn trees. You don't collect figs from thistles, right? That's what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us where we collect things, that the doctrines that prophets preach is based upon the doctrine they believe. And so a true witness delivers souls. And that speaks to the usefulness of words. There's a kind of talking of the lips that is useful, and there's a kind of talking of the lips that's useless. And so talking by itself is not valuable, and in fact, unless it's a communication of truth, it's destructive. And even with communicating truth, you can speak truths in an untimely way. And so selecting the right thing to say at the right time is how value is communicated and how value is created by words. And so a true witness delivers souls. Now the most obvious way that this is true is in a court of law. A true witness can deliver somebody from a false accusation. And we can see the use of, of proper speech in war. Right? There's there's the example of Joshua who encouraged the Israelites to invade when God had commanded. And had they done so, a generation would not have died in the wilderness. Because they did not heed that witness, whose lives did Joshua save? Well, his own and Caleb's. They were saved. They were able to enter into the promised land because they were both two witnesses speaking truth. And when you look at that in a more narrow way, David speaking truth against Goliath and believing truth and speaking truth to make it so he could go out into the field of battle to fight him. The defeat of Goliath led to the collapse of the Philistine morale, which resulted in a general rout and an attack that allowed the Philistines to be pushed out. So the, the witness of truth. You can also have Jonathan, for example, with his shield bearer, when he was able to speak the truth, when he was dealing with the Philistines as well, saying, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his shield bearer said to him that he was with him heart and soul. And so the two of them together went into the camp and caused chaos. The speaking of truth can give strength. A good report about where the enemy is can be useful. So there's a, a saving of lives there. But there's also ordinary life. And you remember Joseph when he was cast into a pit. His brothers wanted to kill him. And Judah suggested that he be sold. And we have Reuben earlier on suggesting he be put into a pit rather than killed immediately. And so these, these two actions, instead of death, those were not quite the full truth. 
<laughs> Neither of them was advancing what ought to have been done, but even speaking against evil sometimes can redirect it even when done improperly. And so we can see the power of a true witness in comparison is much greater. So courts, war, ordinary life, there are ways in which this is true. But the principal way that this is being discussed is in terms of doctrine. True doctrine brings life to the soul. The proclamation of the gospel, the speaking of the true philosophy, the unleashing of the truth of God by the mouths of witnesses on earth has great power to tear down and to build. And so a boldness in speaking is how you can be used by God to deliver souls. I want you to ask yourself honestly, how many times have you shared the gospel with anybody in the last year? You look for examples of that. You know, when you look at the parable of the sower, there were six responses. The responses were that the word as a seed goes, and it either hits the road where it's not able to go in, Satan takes the word away. You have the going in on rocky ground where it's quickly scorched by the sun. There's no root, no faith. You have the growing amongst thorns and therefore the choking out. And this is not a statement that the plant dies, but it doesn't bear fruit. It's useless for the cares of the world. And so then there is the bearing of 30, 60, and 100 fold. The speaking of truth to other people bears fruit and the fruit that it bears is enormous in terms of when you find good soil you know drilling for oil is a business that people either lose money fast or they make even more money faster and the reason is because you can drill and find nothing or when you drill and find oil the result is that money just shoots out of the ground and the nice thing about it is that it's black and not green, so it can't just be made out of thin air. And so this material is something where you're drilling down, you find nothing. You're drilling down, you find nothing. You're drilling down, you find nothing. And when you find something, you don't just pull up stakes and leave until the thing is dry. And so it's just pumping money out of the ground until it's not. And similarly when people are converted by the word, they start producing good works until the Lord takes them. When a person's converted, they become a good work factory. They start pumping out the word and other people start hearing the word. And so, what kind of life, what kind of witness do you want to be? Do you want to be fruitless, Fruitful 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. Well, the Lord is predestined which you are. But I'll tell you what, you know how he's predestined which one it is? Whether you want to do it or not tells you which one you've been predestined to. So if you want to do it and you start doing the good work and casting out seed, then the likelihood of you being very fruitful is very high. And that's an early indicator for you. You might call it a key performance indicator that tells you what you can expect the lagging results to be in your usefulness and your service to the Lord. So the proclamation of the truth, a true witness delivers souls and a deceitful witness speaks lies. There's a call to speak the truth. 
Now, a deceitful witness speaks lies with his mouth, but he also does it with his actions, right? The way you act is a sort of testimony. And so, we are called to speak the truth and to argue doctrine. Now, we don't want to pick every fight we can possibly pick. There's an orderly way to engage. So there's two questions you have to ask yourself when you're wondering where to engage. The first one is, what's the most basic thing I can possibly say right now without exasperating the person I'm talking to? Right? If you start talking to somebody and they say, you know, I believe in socialism, and you say, well, have you considered how you know anything? Right? The general response is going to be, <laughs> are you even listening to me? Did you just... Did you did you just say whatever you felt like without any regard to what we're talking about? But on the other side of it, if you say, well, how do you know what the state should do? Or why do you think socialism is good? Why do you think that forcibly extracting wealth from productive people and giving it to less productive people is the good for the state? Right? So that's something that's philosophical. It's more basic and it can draw you down. When they give you an answer to that, you, know, you can ask them, well, what do you think is good? It's pretty easy to go from there, what's real to what's true. Maybe that's a few conversations, but the point is you map it out. You have a well-mapped philosophy in your mind. You are able to attack targets of opportunity that pop up, and you go, that's great. I know how that maps down to knowledge. And you work your way down. And if the person cares at all, and you've drilled and you've hit oil, and the production of good work, once they make profession of faith, and covenant in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ is worth 30, 60, or 100-fold of the work it required to disciple them along. Now, telling people the gospel, discipling, pulling along, that's what we're called to here. And he who knows how to draw along and to draw out counsel and to get people to talk is wise. Now, Verse 26, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. All right, so the, the themes here are security and life and that comes from true doctrine. Right, the fear of the Lord comes down to the acknowledgement that God is eternal, God is all-powerful, God is the source of truth, God is the good and we have not chosen him. And since he's all-powerful and he's good, he's just. And since he's just and we're not, uh-oh. Right? That's the fear of the Lord. And that's the beginning of wisdom and the searching out for mercy that would occur from that. This idea that there's a preparatory work of the law that helps people to see their guilt and to have an interest in hearing about the gospel. So the law is extremely useful in engaging in things, which is why it's not a waste of time to talk to people who care about social justice or socialism or whatever other social word. And if you will engage with them about the law of God and show them their guilt in that way, it's far more fascinating to them than hearing about the gospel. They don't care about the gospel. It's like, do you want to know about this cancer treatment? And you go, I don't care about this cancer treatment unless you think you have that cancer. And then that treatment is very interesting. And so the law of God is valuable to help people to see that they ought to fear God. And so you engage with them on the absurdities of the denial of the existence of God, presenting the definition of God out of the scriptures and showing how it's necessary by showing the absurdities of denying that God. So, the fear of the Lord brings strong confidence. And the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Now, 
there's a an order here. Verse 26 a is talking about the self, then it goes to the family, and then it goes out to the others, and it gives gener- general principles. So, in the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence for you. This is teaching you how you can be in a place of boldness, right? The righteous are as bold as a lion. And so, if you want confidence to be able to engage in battle, to be able to be a true witness who delivers souls, then you ought to have the fear of the Lord. You should have a deep understanding of the God of the Bible, of His law, and of the Gospel, and how it saves you from your guilt. And in that position, knowing the grace of God, out of gratitude, you have a motive to proceed. And so you have trust that God has saved you, and will save you, and will grant you success in the endeavor. And that results in you being a true witness to your own children. And when you are a true witness to your own children... The result is that those children have a refuge in God. And so the discipleship, first to your own children, that is an audience that you have opportunity to disciple more fully than any other audience you will ever have. And so the ability to teach them all that the Lord has commanded is higher there than with any other disciples. Now, Ideas are propagated in history principally through families. When you look at Genesis and the discussion of the godly seed, of the Sethites, the great danger of marrying women from the city of man and giving over that godly seed to be raised by unbelievers and taking all of the wealth and all of the skill and all of the wisdom accumulated by those men who lived for a millennia. Right? These men lived for centuries. And after, what kind of a state do you think you assemble across eight or nine hundred years of productive work? When you've got kids being born every few years and you have fertility for a few centuries... What kind of a state do you think these men built? What libraries perished from the earth when those souls were extinguished? Right? That wealth and wisdom being passed along to their children, and those children taking that wealth and wisdom and skill and marrying a godless woman, and then their children, the Nephilim, became tyrant kings of the earth and they filled the world with violence. That is what you do with the power that the Lord has given you when you marry wrongly and when you do not raise your children in the faith and when you pass on the work of your life to be controlled under the dominion of the city of man So the fear of the Lord gives confidence that your labors are not in vain because you will disciple your own children. And when you disciple your own children, you can be confident also that they understand that you are not going to pass along to them the things if they reject the faith. It's funny, so many people have these emotional gut-wrenching events where they say, my child is apostatized and how do I deal with this? I don't want to cut them out of my will, and I don't want to whatever. It's like, my kids already know that if they apostatize, they'll be cut out of the will. It's not a question when it happens. 
right? I don't think it's going to happen. I think the Lord will use the preaching of the Word to deliver their souls and cause them to bear lots of fruit. And if you make these things clear and you say, I love you, honey, but if you do not serve the Lord, I will give you nothing. And that will be me loving you. Right? When you are saying that clearly to your children from their youth, that puts the emphasis on the right syllable. People know what matters. So that emphasis, that the fear of the Lord is what matters, that gives strong confidence. Because when you have the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord cannot be taken from you. And your children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It gives life to you. It makes it so you can pour life into other people. It is a life that cannot be taken away. It is everlasting life. And you turn other people away from the snares of death, which is one of the ways you deliver souls from death. That's a part of how lives are saved by the preaching of the word, is you tell people to avoid sin, to avoid unbelief. You tell them about the doctrines of cults, and you show them that the lies of the world are foolishness. Sin attacks those who are its objects, and it attracts more sin by example, habit, and consequence. Sin attacks, and it attracts. Righteousness also attacks. Wisdom and righteousness attack the darkness, and they draw in others to what is good, and they repulse and warn against the traps of evil. All right, verse 28. In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. What is the deal? I thought we were talking about wisdom and true witnesses, and all of a sudden we're talking about kings. I like kings, they're interesting. Right? But what's the deal? What are we doing here? So the idea here is that kings have a more powerful way of being a witness. The laws that are established by magistrates, those have the effect of being a public witness about what is good and what is evil. In addition to that, kings also, the way they behave, the effects are multiplied out. You'll notice that North Korea, if you look at a map of it from space at night, is a very dark place. There are a lot less people there. There's little food and productivity. South Korea, lots of light, lots of food, lots of productivity, way more people. The way that those leaders ran those countries affected the size of the populations they governed. And even though the leader of South Korea is not a dictator, the total power he wields is greater. Less total control of the pie, more pie. Liberty has the effect of increasing power. So you, you read this, you go, that's very nice. I enjoy that. All of us, politics interesting, kings interesting. But I don't know any kings. So replace that with any authority at all. Heads of house, leaders in churches, magistrates, business owners. In a multitude of people is an authority's honor. But in the lack of people is the downfall of an authority. And for any business, the biggest producer of wealth is the people, the intelligent application of effort to get things done. If you have less people, you can get less things done, unless you've got bad people, in which case the mistake was made earlier and you should have gotten rid of them earlier. Get rid of them, get more good people. Problem solved. Those in authority are particularly to take note of honoring the Lord since the people are under their care. Thus, a reminder 
that serving serving the people with words of wisdom and justice and the exercise of both will result in the flourishing of the king himself. We need to remember that the book of Proverbs is wisdom for kings. We are told back in Proverbs 8, verses 4 through... verses. The whole chapter, it's a great chapter, you should read it. Verses 4 and 15 are principally what I want to point out right now. To you, O men, I, wisdom, call. And my voice is to the sons of men. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. Now that's back in the, in the youth section. The idea is we all are prophets, priests, and kings. And you want the competency of being a king. You want to get things done. You want to be one who exercises dominion. And so get wisdom because it is the thing by which kings rule. And so Proverbs is wisdom for kings. Proverbs is about being able to get things done, to be effective, to have skill, haskal. So there's wisdom for kings. So get wisdom, grow in wisdom, apply wisdom, be a competent person whom others can rationally be devoted to in loyalty rather than a fool whom others must desert to avoid self-harm. Be competent. Be competent. Know how to accomplish things. If you can do that, you will draw men to you. This is wisdom for those who desire to become kings. Okay, I don't know any kings. I'm not a king myself. Great. Do you want to improve your station in life? If you want to improve your station in life, this teaches you how to do it. The earlier verses are about speaking truth, and the effect of speaking truth is that you will empower people, you will spread the knowledge of the truth, you will teach yourself, you will become more competent. Learn to be a witness for the truth and to deliver souls. Learn to deliver your own by having self-mastery so that you can apply the law of God. And when you rule well, you will draw men to you, and that is an honor. But in the lack of people is a downfall of a prince. Wisdom is for those who desire to be king, so you should be productive, you should draw followers, and by the way, have children. When you have children, you are adding to those that you can disciple. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not, but with children, you can disciple them better and more and more thoroughly than anybody else because they're around you and you can teach them everything that Jesus commanded. Wisdom for those who seek to serve kings well. You know, we're told later on in Proverbs that a servant that serves his master is like a farmer that handles well his trees. You'll get fruit from them. And when you serve somebody else well, you'll get fruit from that. A worker is worthy of his wages, and when you do things well, you get honor. And if you do things really well, you will not serve obscure men, you will serve before kings. And so if that's the case, then when you serve and you develop things, the desire to become more and more of a king increases your productivity, your ability to draw followers and to provide for children. So wisdom is for those who seek to serve well. Be productive. Help your king to be productive. Increase your followers. Keep those followers. Increase the followers of the person you serve. Help to keep those. Increase the loyalty of other people for the person you serve. Serve well to increase your own authority and the authority of the one you serve and the honor that you both have. 
Wisdom is for defeating evil kings. It's really useful to understand the fact that the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. If you have to deal with somebody who's evil and you're trying to resist them, get rid of their followers. Disaffect their loyalties. And you can do that in righteous ways. Speaking the truth is one of those ways. Lies are not an acceptable way to do that. But, for example, when people are going to godless, liberal churches, the appropriate thing to do is to tell them that their churches are apostate and to disaffect their loyalties from the preachers who are preaching death. That's the appropriate response. When people are in places where they are serving evil, disaffecting their loyalties helps to reduce the power of that evil. Wisdom is for those who seek to serve kings well. Wisdom is for defeating evil kings. And we are called prophets, priests, and kings. Now this applies to nations, to churches, and to households. And so I have instruction there. I've already yelled at you about having children and getting married, so I will not do it a second time, well, third time. Verse 29. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. So slow to wrath, the literal language there is long face. So if you have a long face, you have great understanding. And if you are impulsive or short of spirit, I think breath is probably the better translation here, short of breath. So what's this about? This person short of breath exalts folly. If you're a shallow breather, you should run more. You'll become wiser. Okay, so the idea of the shallow breath, when you're angry, do you huff and puff more? blowing out the nostrils. The quickness of breath is the idea here. It's associated with it. This is giving the external marker. The longness of faith. When you're angry, do you scrunch your face? Typically, people frown, right? Okay, so the longness of faith, the passivity, the serenity of the individual. This idea of longness of face is most often applied actually to God when you look at the usage of the word. And so God doesn't have a face in his spiritual nature, right? So that being the case, what are we talking about here? It's, it's used, obviously, as an idiom for patience, being slow to wrath. But so the idea of the longness of faith is point, face is pointing to the fact that when you have great understanding, you are not easily provoked. Right? When you have somebody that a little jab, you see a twitch on their face, you go, I've got a sucker on the line. I can make this guy angry to do basically whatever I want. Right? That's the reality. So if somebody is easy to make react, then it's easy to do what you want with them. Now, one of the things that kings are called to, by the way, is to be inscrutable. Who can search out the heart of a prince? And the reason is because it's important that princes not be easily manipulable. The more authority you have, the more motive there is to manipulate you. And so you need to be patient. Now, I have this glorious list in the first volume of the Nicot, that's the New International Commentary on the Old Testament, Bruce Waltke, great job in Proverbs. This is the best commentary I know on it. So here's what he has to say about princes and the importance of, of this, this patience. So he goes through, he says, The king serves as a type, an example of any leader. The proverb implicitly encourages the disciple to be a competent person to whom people devote themselves, not a fool whom they desert. A king's competence includes being reliably kind, Proverbs 20, verse 28. 
Just, and he lists several verses. Righteous, 16.12. Truthful, all of these have citations after them. I'm going to stop with the number game. So righteous, truthful, pure and gracious, discerning, inscrutable, disassociating oneself from the wicked, and sober. A king like that struts in stately pride surrounded by his army. Proverbs 30, verse 31, reference to that. Withdrawal of popular allegiance topples a ruler, as Rehoboam learned in 1 Kings chapter 12. The virtues of kings, the virtues of kings includes being slow to wrath, having a long face, and not showing your anger or how easy you are to jab into reaction. It's being slow to wrath. That shows great understanding. One of the reasons it's hard to get people with great understanding to be angry is because of the fact that they don't trust men. Men are liars. And so they test what's being said and they say, I need to see if this is true. Maybe I don't need to see if this is true. Maybe I have too many other things I need to see are true. And they're more important. And so the idea that you don't immediately react because you search out a matter, that's a part of that ability to wait. That's part of the great understanding. But he who is impulsive or short of breath exalts folly. When you react too fast, folly is exalted. It encourages people around you to be dramatic and it encourages them to make charges and move fast. Made an enemy, better go talk to the king and make sure I say something bad about my enemy quickly before they have a chance to do that to me. Great, got the reaction, moving on. If you're familiar at all with the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, the whims of the impulsive dictators to kill people at will destroyed enormous amounts of productivity and encouraged them to be surrounded by liars who would accuse anybody when there was any possibility of anything that could say, this person might be disloyal to me, I need to kill them fast. So that results in the exaltation of folly. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Okay, so a sound heart, if you have wisdom, it gives life to the body. There's two senses in which that's used. It's life to the body in the sense that it actually helps to advance your health, and also it makes it so that your body has life. It has spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is empowering you to do good works, life. Now, on the other side, envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy encourages you to feel like there's injustice. Anger is principally a reaction to feeling like there's injustice. And so if you think there's injustice and you're envious, perhaps there's not injustice, Maybe it's just that you wish you had what the other person has. And so the danger of envy is it's a rottenness to the bones. It makes you irritable. It certainly harms your body, but it also makes you impulsive because you're angry already. And so this danger of envy and the way it destroys what is sound. More to say there, but I don't have time. Verses 31 and 32 He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. The wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his strength. So, the point here is that piety brings virtuous social action. 
and action brings everlasting consequences. That's verses 31 and 32 kind of combined. Now, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7 has this list, um, and that list is essentially that add to your faith valor, and to your valor, knowledge, and to your knowledge, self-control, and to your self-control, endurance, and to your endurance, piety, and to your piety, brotherly love, and to your brotherly love, charity. And so the, the chain there is essentially, you have the knowledge of what God has revealed, apply that with strength. You will need deeper knowledge to do it well. You will then need to exercise greater self-control in government to do it more effectively. That is hard and energy sucking, so you need endurance and fortitude to push through it. And in order to care about that, you're going to need to have a sense of duty, piety, to what's around you. And when you have that sense of duty, the result is going to be that you start to recognize, how can I help my fellow workers? Because there's way too much to do. And so I need to help them and keep them moving along. And when you have them moving along, you start to realize there's way too much to do and too few of us. And so I need to now seek to be charitable to those who are not fellow workers and pull them up. That last stage, charity, giving to those who are fools rather than wise, who are poor rather than rich, and the idea of trying to help them and pull them up, that is mercy on the needy. A true witness delivers souls. It gives the mercy of time to speak truth. There's too much work to do. There are too few of us. Get the truth. Spread it to others. Disciple them. Pull them up. Work beside them. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova? Thank you for your teaching, Elder Reese. Uh, just one quick question. You said there's two questions to ask yourself before engaging in uh, First one, I think I missed one. Uh, the first one I got, what is the most basic thing you can ask that doesn't exasperate them make the situation worse? Uh, what uh, are the targets of opportunity here? Right, so first, is there a target of opportunity? person's walking by, they smile at you. Have you considered what the good is? You know? The smile was a sure indicator that they were ready for it. And then that, what's the most basic thing I can get to that's not going to exasperate them? You're looking for, you're, you're scanning around your T-1000, you're looking for a target, right? <laughs> and, then, and then from there, you're looking for now, what's the most basic thing I can do on the engagement? Sure. Okay. Target, tactic. Target, tactic. Okay. Great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us deeply, that you would cause us to see the value of this book of wisdom, that we would love the book of Proverbs, that we would store it up in our hearts, that we would have truth that we can give to others as true witnesses. Father, I ask that you would give us a desire and give us ability to be true witnesses. Father, we ask that you would help us here to be those who deliver souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.